0: Welcome, everyone, to the last of this year's Contemporary Theology Lectures, and a particular welcome to anyone who's here for the first time. Um, we're especially pleased to be able to welcome some people from L'Arche, who will be sharing in this evening's proceedings. Our speaker tonight, Frances Young, is, I think, already known to quite a number of you, because she's lectured in Canterbury before, And some of you may remember hearing her in this church 18 months ago giving a talk as part of the Reformation 500 series. Frances was the Edward Cadbury Professor of Theology at the University of Birmingham, and she's now an emeritus professor. She's also a Methodist minister and the mother of three sons. And her eldest son has severe learning disabilities. And that means that Francis has done a lot of thinking about theology and disability. So, Francis, we're delighted to welcome you tonight back to this church to talk to us on a theology of disability.
1: Right, we have a little slideshow to start with, just so you can see exactly where I'm coming from. And the first one is sitting up there. This is my first baby. Um, you can probably tell we have a pretty inert little baby there. Uh, he was—he didn't smile at six weeks, and we had no idea of the significance because, of course, it was our first baby. He was born premature weight, um, but he was a full-term baby. And when he was eight months, we were told he was microcephalic. If you have any Greek, that means he'd got a little head. He has an abnormally small head and brain because in the latter part of pregnancy, he was deprived of nourishment and oxygen. So he was a very late developer and at, ooh, no, (laughs) it worked just now, do I have to point it at something? (laughs) There we are. This this is when he was one year old and uh, he's sort of uh, cutting his birthday cake uh, on my knee, obviously, Um, and he's still not really able uh, to sit unaided, um, and has very little mobility. And then, this is when he was two years old, he's with his great-grandmother, my grandmother, and uh, he's propped up, he's still needing assistance to sit, and she spent hours with him at the time when I was uh, awaiting the arrival of my second son and she taught him to clap and he's been clapping ever since. (laughs) Um, Now he's uh, age seven and he's crawling, crawling everywhere. We were taught to do Domen Delicato method with him which is a patterning of arms and legs And they promised that once he was crawling, he would develop in many other ways because uh, he would want to go and fetch a toy at the other side of the room. Ha, ha. He really enjoyed crawling. He went racing all over the place, even crawled upstairs, uh, though we did stand behind to make sure he was okay. Um, He never did get the idea of going and fetching a toy, however so we leap to his teens, and here he is in his teens. You may notice his beautiful curly hair. That was a side effect of the epilim, which he had regularly to prevent epileptic seizures. Um, and you can see I'm still feeding him. He had and has no self help skills. Let's see if we can get on again. No. <laughs> Uh, And then, after I'd fed him, I'm putting his top on, ready to go out. And then, if we can get the next one... (laughs) There, I'm assisting him to walk out of the house. Um, He sat on his legs for years and years and crawled around the house. His legs became permanently bent... And we were advised it would be a good idea to straighten his legs. So he had his legs put in plaster and then wedges in the back of the knees to try and force them, the tendons to lengthen. It was an unbelievably awful process. But he, he got on his feet. We were advised to go through it because he was on his feet if you could give him support and he would step out. And I still remember holding him up and him really stepping hard to get out into the garden, because he's always been, uh, enjoyed being outside. Now, there's a sense in which that slide represents the height of his achievement. He was 17 at this point. But when we come to the next one, which is his younger brother's wedding, and his brother on the left uh, was married at age 24 so he's now 26. You can see he's in a wheelchair which is shaped to take account of his scoliosis and in his early 20s he not only developed the scoliosis but his hips permanently dislocated and became non-weight bearing. So he lost his crawling, he lost his mobility. Uh, and that was our first massive experience of loss because we'd worked very hard on his mobility over the years. So then we come on to the next one and this is my mother who lived with us into her 90s and she and Arthur were great companions and we had this period uh, in his 20s and 30s when life on the whole was a lot easier than it had been either when he was a child or sometimes since. Um, He and my mother were great companions and um, it was very helpful having her living with us. He went occasionally to uh, Kingswood, which was a respite care service, so that we occasionally had breaks and were able to take holidays. He went every day out to a day centre, and so altogether life was on a fairly regular pattern. But eventually my mother died and my husband got older and began to have some physical problems, uh, which ended up with keyhole surgeries and I ended up being the sole carer getting him up in the morning, putting him to bed at night. And our other sons ganged up and said, you must do something about Arthur's long-term future. So the next few pictures are Arthur's last weekend at home. You can see he's clapping his hands. And uh, I think we have um, uh, another one of his last weekend at home, which shows how he spent a great deal of time on his front on a beanbag because he wasn't crawling around anymore but that was an alternative position to sitting in the wheelchair and he's got his favorite chill out baby hammer in his hand can you see that plastic rattle hammer so he left home and I shall come back and talk a little about that at the end of what I present Um, and went into a little residential home with six residents, uh, all of them quite profoundly disabled, because these days it's supported independent living, if you can do it, and um, uh, in, uh, in this little residential home, which we were given four to look at, and The um, last one we visited, I came out and said to my husband, that's the nearest to a LARSH community we've seen. Uh, I shall be talking more about LARSH later, but I hope most of you know about L'Arche, where people live in community with those with learning disabilities. Now, I think 130 communities all over the world. We'll talk about it more later. So if we go on to the next one, this is Arthur's 50th birthday party. And we had a party with uh, uh, all of our fairly extended family, uh, but also with some of the residents from the home where he lives now. You can see I'm feeding him his birthday cake, still feeding, at age 50. And uh, behind him is Gamal. Gamal has been his key worker and And his friend for several years now. Uh, And clearly he comes from the Asian population of Birmingham. And if we go on to the next one. We have the group of four residents. And some of the staff who came to his 50th birthday party. There's Annette on the right. Who is... uh, well, she loves counting and doing sums, but she's extremely limited in other ways. Um, at the back there is Anna, uh, obviously pregnant. She went away on maternity leave and came back and is now the deputy manager. Then there's Mark with Down syndrome, uh, Arthur in his wheelchair with Oland behind him, and Gamau and Jean, and you can see... That the carers and the community are a pretty mixed bunch, um, but they are like a large community in that you sense something about their commitment to one another whenever you visit. So, uh, when Arthur was 17, and more or less at the height of his powers, I wrote this little book, which some people may have come across in the past. And then a few years later, um, uh, I was asked to add to it some of the talks and things I'd given since the first version. Um, And then more recently, we have Arthur's Call, which is... uh, published just a a few years ago. So what's the difference between the face-to-face books and Arthur's Call? Uh, I put it like this. I've moved between them from the why questions to recognizing that through Arthur I've been given privileged access to the deepest truths of Christianity. And the other big move is from my vocation to his vocation. Uh, The uh, original face-to-face was written as I was emerging from years in the wilderness and moving towards my own ordination. This one is about his vocation rather than mine. And so if we get to the next slide, we'll just stop there for the moment. That is the original photo from which the cover of the last book Was taken. So the hammer was removed and the uh, thing was turned into black and white. So that gives you a bit of an introduction, and you will understand that I've had a lifetime of reflection. I've been on a theological journey, and what I shall share with you is a collage of material through a series of themes. And the first concerns the cross. It was the initial breakthrough after those years in the wilderness. The time, the occasion was what was then known as Mental Handicap Week. We'll talk about language in a minute. Um, But in those days, that was the usual term. It was Mental Handicap Week, so I asked the minister of my church if it could be honoured by uh, the service that day. So he turned the tables on me and challenged me to preach. And it was jolly hard, I can tell you. I I was, I, I had been trained as a lay preacher years and years and years before, but I'd not been preaching for a while. And what that did was help me to see that the cross is the proper Christian response to the problem of theodicy, the question Uh, Why suffering? Why evil if God is a good creator? It began with reflection on John chapter 9. You know the story of the man blind from birth and the challenge was to make sense of the opening discussion with the disciples. Who sinned, this man or his parents, they asked. Neither was Jesus' reply. That's a relief. But then he goes on, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. I found anger boiling up. Why should this adult have lived years of disability just so Jesus could wave a magic wand and display his power? This was no answer to the question how you could go on believing in a good creator God when something had gone so wrong in the creation of a new human being. But with deeper reflection, facilitated by hours of reading and rereading the text in Greek with students, I began to see how that particular story belonged in the wider context of the gospel as a whole. It was told as a sign that Jesus is the light of the world, the light that darkness could not grasp, if you go back to the prologue about the word of God, you remember. The light that in the end didn't wave a magic wand, but entered into the very depths of the darkness of the world's gone wrongness on the cross. For in John's gospel, the cross is the hour of glory to which the whole narrative moves. So God in Christ took responsibility for all the gone wrongness, sin and suffering alike, and by entering it and bearing it, transformed it. The why questions? Well, they were overtaken by this twist on the doctrine of atonement, and the seed of renewal was born. It would germinate, not only the sermon for that occasion, but also prayers of thanksgiving and the fruits of the spirit in the challenge of everyday life. So that's the first of my bits that are going to form this collage, a new way of looking at the cross. I move now to creatureliness. Given all the gone wrongness of the world, how do you go on believing in a good creator? Well, my sister lived and worked in Botswana for a while, and the first time we went to visit her, she arranged for us to have a trip in the Okavanga Delta. So, I invite you to join me in the wilds of the Okavanga Delta. Our African guide walks in front through the bush. Suddenly, he stops and urges us back. After a bit, we turn and ask, ''What's the problem?'' He points to some waving branches. Elephant, he says. We'd been dangerously close. We set out downwind and give it a wide berth. Back in camp, we see an elephant splash across the channel of water. All night, we lay in our tents, listening to the call of the nightjar, the bark of hyena, the sound of roaring lion. Early next morning, we walk miles, tracking lion, but the cats are elusive. We find fresh elephant dung. We nervously take a circular route back and the next 24 hours are similar. We hear hippo grunting and our guide poles the dugout away fast in the other direction. We spot buffalo grazing and avoid the area. We go in search of the leopard we've been hearing but see nothing but wildebeest And leaping buck, lechwe, and impala. We were in one of the last places in Africa where you can still have experiences similar to the old explorers. For safety, we were dependent upon traditional skills, tracking, observation, caution, keeping the fire alight all night. We didn't see much game, but we did slide through long grassy meadows in a punt on a level with frogs and dragonflies, spiders' webs and water lilies. It was a rich paradise, yet always the frisson of the wild, the edge of insecurity. It was amazing, the kind of experience we Westerners rarely have. We were little and vulnerable in a stunningly beautiful but potentially threatening world. There was something awesome about just being there. Even so, we were cushioned compared with our hunter-gatherer ancestors. We had tinned food and tin openers. And we had insect repellent and anthesan We escaped the dreaded malaria and sleeping sickness. But on our return... We appreciated antibiotics to deal with our tick typhus. And we did escape, flying dramatically over the swamp and seeing the giraffe far below. This was a salutary reminder of what the human condition really is in the context of creation. And how wrong-headed are so many of our protests at life's hardships. In the bush, you don't question the right of the elephant to charge or the lion to pounce on its prey. The world you inhabit is not something over which you have control, but one where you seek wisdom to cope with its challenges It's a majestic world to be respected, to be loved for what it is. A world of wonder that exhilarates even as it terrifies. And it never crosses your mind that God ought to make things easy. Any power which could control of that environment would destroy it. If it is to be what it is... It has to be let be. Power corrupts. Divine omnipotence might be demonic. Isn't God to be glorified for letting the paradoxical paradise of this wilderness be itself, dangers and all? The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars? At first sight, this is no answer to Job's searching questions. No solution to his desperate struggle to grasp how his fate can be reconciled with God's justice. But that reaction assumes the book is about the problem of suffering. Suppose it's not Suppose its purpose is to celebrate loyalty which is not self-interested, trust which transcends reward, loving God for God's sake. And what if the final chapters are an invitation to love creation for its own sake, irrespective of human interest? If so, Job surely gives rise to the same question. Isn't God to be glorified for letting that paradoxical paradise of the wilderness be itself dangers and all? After all his protests, confronted with the wonders of God's creation and made to feel very small, made to respect nature for nature's sake, He's ashamed of his narrow, self-pitying attitude to God's miraculous gift of existence. Face to face with the creator, Job's questions fade away. With the individualism of our culture and our success-oriented values, not least the remarkable successes of medical science, we have lost something quite fundamental, that sense of our creatureliness, the fact that we are part of the natural order, vulnerable and mortal. And all that despite Darwin, the old theologians of the early church would have found Darwin easier to accept than 19th century believers because they were very aware that we are creatures, part of the natural order. Relationship with those who are impaired, especially those who are utterly vulnerable and dependent, like Arthur, is a really important catalyst for rediscovering our common human frailty and finding in the ordinary patterns of life what it means to be human. That's where you find the deep roots which produce the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness faithfulness, and I'm going to dry up. There are nine of them, and the last one is self-control. And I once heard somebody say, if you can recite the list, you're halfway there. So clearly I'm not even halfway there. But it is with Arthur that I have found the fruits of the Spirit. And it is Arthur who over the years has ministered to me I would come in frazzled by students and their problems, which to them seemed so enormous and brought right down to the ordinary mechanics of what it means to be human in feeding and caring for someone who could do nothing for himself. Arthur ministered to me and so Arthur helps with the release from those why questions to beginning that journey towards uh, the deeper truths of Christianity. Now, I'm going to share with you uh, what I said to Larsh at their International General Assembly at Swanwick in 2002 because that I think moves us from the questions about creation to ways in which this kind of experience with people who are profoundly vulnerable can lead to the deeper truths of Christianity. And it's basically a rereading of what Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. So we begin with two moments in the biblical creation stories because they provide clues to what Paul meant when he wrote, we have this treasure in clay pots. We have this treasure in clay pots. When God created, according to the first chapter of Genesis, God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Later, he put lamps in the sky, the bigger one to reign over the day, and the smaller one to reign over the night. We call them the sun and the moon. Lamps in the ancient world were simple pots made of fired clay filled with oil and a wick stuck through the spout. So in biblical times, light to chase away darkness came in clay pots. When God created according to Genesis 2, he took dust, dampened it into clay and shaped a human figure. Archaeologists have found little earthenware figurines all over the Middle East and the storyteller probably had them in mind. God first fashioned the clay figure, then breathed life into it so the human became a living being. Now when I was speaking to L'Arche and there were f- people there with learning disabilities, I had a little clay light from ancient times to show them and a little clay figurine. Now those two moments I suggest provide clues to what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure in clay pots. Light and life constitute this treasure and it's contained in the equivalent of common clay jars, our human bodies. What I'll suggest is that the experience of knowing and loving people with learning disabilities also provides clues to Paul's meaning. In the biblical world, pots were used to store basic commodities like grain and oil. When Paul says we have this treasure in clay pots, he may imply a contrast with expensive gold or silver containers, so reinforcing ordinariness of his image. Treasure is secreted in the everyday. It's not far away at the proverbial end of the rainbow, an unattainable dream, nor the object of a long quest as legend would have it. No, we have this treasure, light and life, present in ordinary clay pots. God's life contained in the clay pot, God's image in ordinary human being. So later Paul writes, for it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is referring back to creation, And then he points to the face of Jesus as the place where we see the glory of the creator God, who not only breathed life into human beings, but through Jesus has shone light into people's hearts. This light implies wisdom. Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, suggests in another letter so the treasure is light and life and wisdom hidden in clay in ordinariness in our vulnerable and fragile bodies clay pots are expendable cheap so easily replaced and they need to be because they're easily shattered and once broken not repairable And mostly that's true of our mortal bodies. In the modern Western world, people have forgotten the limitations and vulnerability of human life. The success of medical science has done so much to ensure our ills are cured, our brokenness repaired and the expectation of life prolonged. That most people live as if everything should be perfect. Suffering exposes sorry, suffering and death, disfigurement and disability seem uncomfortable. The cult of sport exposes perfect bodies and encourages their development through training, aiming to be gold and silver vessels rather than clay pots, we might say. And women are seduced into emulating the exposed, perfect bodies of those ideal models whose image are all around us in the media. Now, given that context, this is where L'Arche comes in. Because in L'Arche, beauty is perceived in damaged bodies, The presence of treasure within brokenness is acknowledged, along with the sanctity of vulnerable and fragile bodies. Now, I had a number of clay pots uh, at the Larch IGA, and at this point, I turned one of them round, and the backside was broken, and inside was a candle, And I said, you see, if you put a lighted candle in a clay pot, it's only when it's broken that the light is exposed. Paul used this image to reinforce the contrast between God's power and human weakness. I quote, we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Paul wants us to realize the paradox. The broken body of the crucified Christ is where light and life, wisdom and beauty are to be found. And it's the broken, vulnerable clay pots of our bodies which bear testimony to God's power, God's glory, light, life and wisdom hidden in the ordinariness of fragile clay jars. Clay pots are easily shattered, but brokenness reveals the treasure within, the light and life and wisdom of God, which we receive through Christ, so we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies, says Paul. God's presence is recognized in mutual dependence upon one another. In the ordinary everyday business of living together, the divine image is discerned, secreted in ordinary clay pots. That's the large experience which chimes with Paul's climax. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace as it extends to more and more people may increase thanksgiving. To the glory of God. So, the cross and creatureliness. Now, what about God's image in ordinary human being? I think we need to reflect a bit on what this means. Let's start with the old assumption that it's the mind or soul which is in God's image. This interpretation inevitably carries negative implications for those perceived to be intellectually inferior. Women, slaves, persons with disabilities. There are of course examples of positive acceptance of intelligent persons with physical disabilities. There was someone called Didymus the Blind who was nicknamed Didymus the Seer because he saw more profoundly than those with physical sight. But that intellectualizing tradition is inevitably elitist. Taken to mean that each is made in God's image, it also conspires with modern individualism, encouraging people to assert their rights no matter what their race, religion or impairment or whatever. This may enhance dignity and respect for those who are not white, male, able-bodied and intelligent, but such individualism tends to exacerbate the prejudice that since we're made in God's image, we should all be perfect. Failure to reach notional perfection can then become problematic. How can this person who has physical or mental defects be made in God's image. Well let's turn to the biblical text. In Genesis Adam represents the whole human race. The very name means humankind. Adam humankind was made in the image of God but it was marred wasn't it according to the story by disobedience classically known as the fall So glib talk about everyone being made in God's image needs countering with sensitivity first to the corporate nature of the image as well as awareness that all have fallen short of God's glory as Paul put it. Paul's epistles show how crucial is the parallel between Adam and Christ. In Christ we are a new creation, he says, And as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Adam is the old man, Christ is the new man, and all of us, male and female, are in Adam and potentially in Christ, both being in some sense corporate figures. In that very passage we were looking at just now, Paul speaks of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It is Christ who is the true image of God, the image of God in Adam, the old humanity, was marred. It's in Christ that we're in God's image. Being in Christ is being in the body of Christ a corporate reality, for a body is made up of many members, all of whom bring different contributions to the whole. Indeed, if you read it in the original Greek, the translators are always a bit wary of bringing this out, it actually says, those body bits we're ashamed of or embarrassed about and cover up are indispensable and the weak are to be especially honoured. This is a highly physical image, and the physical reality was that in his bodily existence, Christ was abused, disabled, and put to death. Some aspects of God's image in Christ can only be reflected in the church by the full inclusion and honouring of those who have bodies that are likewise impaired. I once heard Jean Vanier say that Mother Teresa spoke of repulsion, compassion and wonderment. She's talking, of course, your first exposure to the poor in the streets of Calcutta. I had the experience of passing through that sequence on successive visits to the original L'Arche community in France. I was uh, spending an evening at La Forestière, the foyer where the most seriously disabled live, people like my Arthur. And I felt very embarrassed at my own repulsion when sitting opposite Edith at the dinner table as she slobbered her food, and she loved her red wine, and it went all down her front. And then sometime later, I was visiting again, and again went to La Forestière, and found myself at prayer time after the meal, sitting next to Edith on the sofa, and I reached compassion. As I sat there during those evening prayers, endeavouring to distract Edith from her constant self-abuse. Finally, wonderment. I happened to visit again when Edith had just died. At the wake, person after person gave testimony to what Edith had meant to them. I admit my French was a bit challenged. Then I went to the chapel where Edith was laid out, surrounded by flowers and candles, still and at peace. And in prayer with others, I was overcome with wonderment. It's that kind of discernment which is what allows recognition of God's image and likeness in human living and being So that's my third sort of bit to fit into the collage. My fourth, I've entitled Liberation Through Human Solidarity. The physical reality was that in his bodily existence, Christ was abused, disabled, and put to death. Some aspects of God's image in Christ can only be reflected in the church by the full inclusion and honoring of those who have bodies that are likewise impaired. Like liberation theologians, Larsh knows that top-down charity is patronizing. When liberation theologians read their Bibles, they see God on the side of the poor. They hold out hopes of changing the world, ending poverty, fulfilling the magnificat, bringing down the powerful and lifting up the lowly, filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich empty away. They offer theologies of hope for the oppressed and marginalised. In important ways, L'Arche shares that perspective. People with learning disabilities are poor in terms of life's gifts and talents, not to mention their often social exclusion, economic deprivation and lack of human relationship and love. But in important ways, L'Arche challenges liberation theologies. For the poverty of people with learning disabilities is simply not removable, at least not by human agency. People with learning disabilities are born that way or become that way through incurable brain damage. L'Arche reminds us of the limits of human capacity to put things right. It obliges us to confront the vulnerability of human creatureliness and the false ideology of trying to turn this life into a perfect paradise. You probably all know that prayer which I was trying to remember on the way here. I haven't got it exactly right, but it's something like, help me to accept the things I cannot change, to change what I can and give me the wisdom to know the difference. How then is God on the side of these poor people? Hope lies not in the removal of their condition, but in another dimension. Assistants in L'Arche discover that through difference is revealed something deeply significant about our common humanity. And about God's presence in it. In communion and community, there is a contemplative waiting on God with one another, which is far removed from political activism or patronizing charity. It's a mutual respect which embraces weakness, vulnerability, even death. All are vulnerable and in need of salvation. And in mutuality, grace is imparted to each. Each giving and receiving as we give dignity to one another by receiving from one another. Many years ago, I was visiting the original L'Arche community in Trollebrouille. And spending the evening, I think again it was La Forestia, a man with downs settled on the floor at my feet, placed his arms round my knees and stared into my face with love and concentration all through the prayer time. Our mutual gaze became deeply significant as I began to sense that he was offering me the wordless response of love, which at the time I scarcely received from my own severely disabled son. His name was Christophe Christ Bearer. Last week, I was speaking at a conference at Roehampton University. The title was Creating Compassionate Communities of Inclusion. There are key things for community in L'Arche and its sister organization, Faith and Light. The two key things are welcoming difference and mutuality, and the two need to be held together if we're to welcome difference, to affirm the other, embrace the stranger, we have to acknowledge that there is a difference. Being colorblind doesn't challenge racism. Yes, we were taught to talk about mental handicap, to distinguish it from mental health issues. And then the language turned to learning difficulties and I said, well, for heaven's sake, I'm a university professor and I have learning difficulties. (laughs) We had to shift to learning disabilities in order to name what was necessary to uh, support people. But of course, as soon as you have a name, there is the danger of labeling. And us and them needs to be balanced by an identification with one another through belonging and sharing. The mutuality, not top-down charity, the mutuality is really important alongside welcoming difference. It impresses me that Jean Vanier doesn't write disability theology, which has become a big thing these days. He writes what I would call theological anthropology, what it means for all of us to engage in relationship with those with learning disabilities. There's a book by Deborah Beth Creamer on disability theology in which she protests against the binary, you know, People who are impaired and people who are able-bodied. The binary doesn't work because we're all on a spectrum. And she talks about a theology of limit because we are all limited. All limited. And the testimonies of large systems, well, they find themselves through mutual relationship with those they assist They go beyond professional caring to friendship. In the immediate aftermath of Jean Vanier's recent death, aged 90, there were people all over the world giving testimony to all that he has meant in their lives. One of my correspondents, Sister Claire Rolfe, sent words which are so true to the experience of so many of us that I dared to ask permission to quote. Jean has gone to be with his dearest and most beloved friend, Jesus, she wrote. Jean, the friend of the poor, the friend to so many, to each one of us. He befriended us in our weakness and poverty and said, you are loved exactly as you are, You do not have to be anything else. Jean, she went on, Jean was for me a living icon of our Lord. He revealed the kind, tender, respectful, welcoming, human, loving face of Jesus. I will spend the rest of my life receiving the gift. How blessed we have all been One of the things I noticed about Jean was his capacity to give total attention to a person. That was how so many had the experience described by Sister Claire, the sense of being befriended by Jean. And the welcome and hospitality so many of us have received from large communities was inspired by Jean's very way of being as well as his prophetic call to welcome each and every one, especially those who are different, the excluded, the marginalized. The testimonies of L'Arche assistants to their discovery of mutual joy in relationship with core members, those with learning disabilities, proves that in L'Arche the caring relationship has gone beyond mere caring. It is real friendship. What Jean embodied, Larsh exemplifies, as well as Faith and Light. And, um, well, yes, let me quickly move you to Moscow. Do you know I had to teach a course in a Methodist seminary in Moscow once? Did you know there was a Methodist seminary in Moscow? (laughs) But I already had some contacts through Faith and Light with Faith and Light in Russia. And so on the Sunday afternoons, during my spell there, I spent the afternoons with Faith and Light. And there was this amazing Sunday afternoon when the meeting place was just round the corner from the park called touri And while the, uh, some of the ladies in the group were preparing the communal meal, we were all sent out for a walk in the park. Now the Park Culturi is where they dump all the unwanted old statues, you know, Lenin and Stalin, and <laughs> <laughs> but also there are carved lions and and peacocks and all sorts of things. So here I was going for a walk on my right arm was a man with Down syndrome who had no language. On my left arm was a man with learning disabilities who had no language. And we went for a walk in the park and they were pulling me over here to stroke the heads of carved lions, pulling me over here to pat the heads of carved dogs. It was all quite surreal. But the point is, language was not an issue. Body language and sharing somehow transcended all the difference. And the 20th anniversary in 2010... They asked me back to Moscow to share with their celebration. Their theme was everyone counts and matters for the whole body, 1 Corinthians 12. So I taught them that English song, head, shoulders, knees and toes, you know, action songs are really important with um, faith and light groups and groups with people with learning disabilities. And um, they kept asking the question, are we like other faith and light groups? And I said, well, yes and no. There was the same singing together, Tezé songs, choruses, but also Orthodox chants because they were Orthodox Christians. There was the same cloth laid out at the center of the circle as a focus for prayer, spread with candles and flowers and twigs and stones and beautiful things. And the icon of St. Minas. St. Minas was a martyr saint in the 4th century. Uh, the icon is Coptic. He was Coptic, a Coptic Christian. He was known as the friend of Jesus. And if you look at the icon, you can see Jesus is holding the Gospel book and his arm is right round St. Minas and the fingers of his hand, Jesus' hand, are on the the shoulder of St. Minas. And everywhere at that celebration they had the icon of St. Minas and I heard how the people with learning disabilities would point and say, there's my friend, there's my friend. So I was asked if there was anything I'd like to take back with me I said I'd love one of those icons and they said of course no problem we just print them off the internet and stick them on cardboard <laughs> so I have this cardboard from Moscow which sits beside my bed and I too can look and feel the hand of Jesus friendship on my shoulder and so another one. Oh, no can we go that's it In 2001, uh, I actually managed to take Arthur with me on pilgrimage to Lourdes with Faith and Light. He was then aged 33. And um, there we are in the hotels on Maundy Thursday having our foot washing ritual I can see the time is going on. I'd love to be able to talk to you about the importance of foot washing in L'Arche. It's become an ecumenical sacrament in which everyone can share, whereas Eucharist is problematic because of the Roman Catholic uh, canon rules. And um, it's also a sacrament of the bodylessness, of caring for people who cannot care for themselves. Uh, So it's very special, and so here we are in Lourdes, and, and um, Arthur doesn't really know quite what's happening, but strangely, he was more alive in Lourdes than I've ever known him, I think. And, and so people were going around the group, washing feet, and you can see his feet are bare. And, and the minute the warm water touched his feet, he suddenly went, Ooh! and then a wonderful giggle. And it, we were all in silence and there was this wonderful moment when somehow everyone relaxed and, and Arthur brought us together into communion over the foot washing. It so happened that I brought Arthur to Canterbury on pilgrimage the year of that IGA, International General Assembly, um, in, uh, in Swanwick. They were coming here to Canterbury on pilgrimage afterwards. And um, so I'm very pleased to be able to say that there are some people here from uh, Larsh, Kent. And I have a bit more I'd like to share with you afterwards, but uh, they have agreed to come and share a little bit in response to what I've been saying um, about Larsh and all it means.
2: Okay. So, hello, we're from Lush, Kent, and there's a few of us lurking at the back there who are all shaking their heads and won't come up, so... <laughs> We're the ones who aren't chicken, okay? So, so my name's Louise, and I'm a member of Larsh Kent, and I work with Larsh uh, National as well in formation. And this is my friend who's going to
1: introduce herself.
3: Hello, my name's Caroline, and I've been in Larsh eight years and five months since yesterday.
2: Oh, <laughs> Daily anniversary, isn't it, really? So it was really lovely to hear how Larsh was described, and, and sometimes we need reminding of that, because community... Has a great meaning and a great heart, but the day to day can be a bit messy, can't it, Caroline? Mm. <laughs> yes. Do you want? It'd be quite good if you were happy to tell people what you enjoy about the day to day of life. What's meaningful for you? What, what have we done recently that you really enjoyed?
3: Oh, we've done so many things. We've done pilgrimage. We've done parties. Paul's <laughs> one of the members of the 60th birthday party. There was my birthday party. There was Lowe's pilgrimage. We go on lots of events, community gatherings, celebrations.
2: Can you say a bit about the pilgrimage? That might be good because we've just been hearing a lot about the importance of pilgrimage, especially with the icon as well. So there might be something that you feel was special and we were talking about where God is in our pilgrimage as well earlier, weren't we?
3: Mm-hmm. I like the pilgrimage because we connect with people. We're all over the wor- in the houses and we get to say prayers, we talk about God, and what God means to us, and we sing songs, and we listen to readings. And yeah, it's just really important, and I just love doing it every single year, and it's a wonderful scene.
2: So, so what we did this year was, we day by day, we walked to Canterbury Cathedrals. So we started away from one of our houses, and did a bit every day, didn't we?
3: We started from Dover to Cana, but that's the first day I did not do, because I'm studying. So, so
2: people come for as much of the pilgrimage as they can. And we have friends, and we have small children, and we have much older people. We have wheelchairs going through rutted fields. But really, it's about that journey together and the journey with God.
3: We have animals as well, like dogs, <laughs> like this time. It yeah, th-
2: th- th- was a, quite a surreal moment. We had five dogs. So they decided to weave in a story from Tobit um, about a dog. So there's, there's a lot of effort goes into our pilgrimages, um, and what's beautiful about it is it's a real moment of celebration out of the day-to-day. And Jean often says that the two pillars of community in Larch are forgiveness and celebration, and I think Larch, Kent, is brilliant at celebration. Any excuse for cake, probably at least twice a day if they can get it in for somebody's birthday.
3: Probably even more. <laughs>
2: And and perhaps the hard side is is learning to live with the difference, isn't it? We really want to do that, and we value it, and it's really what we celebrate. But we also know we're human. We are those clay pots, and we struggle. And so there is something about learning to to forgive each other, and also to forgive ourselves for for perhaps not being as good at living with the great diversity that we'd like to. And and so parts of community can be quite hard, Um, but it's also the gift, and that's also where, in a way... Um, there's a saying, I think it's sort of it's undoing a little bit of, of, of the, um, the words of being an earthware pot, but um, Leonard Cohen said and then the Marx Brothers said it better um, blessed are the cracked for they let in the light, and they let the light out as well, and I think that's where we discover God, is in, often in our sort of brokenness, and the times where we're failing a bit ourselves, and our friends come along and help us out really do you want to say anything about what's, what's difficult and when a friend's helped you, can you think of anything that you'd like to share?
3: Well, I've just been feeling low and things are difficult, like my studies, and people tell me to keep going because I'm close to the end next month, and yeah, people tell me to keep going because I'm doing quite a hard course at the moment, so people give me advice and tell me to keep going, so they're encouraging me, and they're saying, carry on, carry on, you're there.
2: So we we need each other's encouragement, don't we? And I value Caroline's friendship because she's really, really good at phoning me. I think she phones everybody, but she's really good at phoning me, and she calls me into friendship. Um, And actually, I can be quite good at not getting round to that, to working too hard, and you've got family, and you've got the washing to do. And before you know it, you realise you're not really present to anybody. So Caroline is very good at ringing me and saying, when are we going for coffee? When are you coming to visit? Why haven't you been for dinner? And, and that really calls me back to the heart of being really present, you know, to actually really spend time with one another. Uh, Jean in Community and Growth, if you've read his book, he talks about the importance of wasting time together. So we, we try to be good at wasting time, don't we?
3: We try to, but it's not actually easy.
2: Well, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think Lars Kent's quite good at spending time together. And uh, there simply to be so many parties, we can't keep up, really. But it's we a real do blessing. that
3: all the time, though.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, nobody wants to do the washing up, do they?
3: No, but Faith House has a dishwasher, but I think that's pretty lazy. I just wash my own dishes in my own house.
2: <laughs> so, so there are lots of ways that we live community, whether it's under the same roof or under different roofs. We have our own families, we have our own homes that we... perhaps with children and, and our own uh, little lives, but we also share lives through the coming together at mealtimes, praying together, celebrating and sharing, don't we? Spending time. And that's really important for us. So it's really good to be reminded and hear again... The blessings of Larsh. And I was just struck that some of the uh, members of different churches that have been part of Larsh have passed through, have visited, perhaps have been local clergy for the local parishes. They still say to me today that Larsh is the place they meet some of the most mature Christians. And they're not talking about just the ones without disabilities. In fact, they're probably not talking about us at all. Um, but there is a real sense that there's a, a spiritual journey that's offered. Um, Through community and we're invited into and it's a gentle invitation. We might not all engage in the same way But it is a place of growth and of challenge and and for us. I think that's a real blessing isn't it?
3: Yes Mm -hmm. I I just enjoy being in the community some days. Yes, I find it difficult, but some days I just carry on going (laughs) and Some days I like being with people because I make friends and, yeah, I learn new things and I go out there and I look for jobs and I study and I encourage other people.
2: And so it, we just want to remember, really, as the last thing is that um, this, this coming together in community is a place of learning to love. Jean says that to love someone is to reveal to them that they are beautiful. Yeah. And I've certainly received that in L'Arche and it sounds like you have too, doesn't it? Yes. Okay. Thank you.
1: Liberation through human solidarity. Um, I want to end with a a fifth little contribution to uh, my collage. You see, trust is essential for communion, and it's a very, very hard lesson. It took me a long time to feel relaxed about letting others care for Arthur, and eventually came. The challenge of finally letting go made worse, you know, because Jean Bannier said to me, Arthur is your way to God. So we were uh, facing up to the fact that um, we, we had to uh, do something about Arthur's long-term future. And I find it hard to describe the, the grief uh, which I felt And just as we were going through that process, the daily news had those awful things about Winterbourne View on the telly. And that did not help with having trust in the fact that um, others could care for Arthur. So I want to share with you through the last few pictures um, my breakthrough. Jean Vanier has written a wonderful book called Drawn into the Mystery of Jesus Through John's Gospel. And in that book, he suggests that uh, Lazarus might have been a person with learning disabilities. And I had reflected on that a great deal. And I'll see if this... Yes. (laughs) I met someone from uh, Bulgaria... Who was an icon painter, but clearly someone who was prepared to uh, not just do the traditional things, but. And I said, Could you do an icon of Lazarus as a person with learning disabilities? And I sent her a photograph of my Arthur, and she said, How do I do? A wheelchair in an icon, and then she found an icon of Elijah in his chariot going to heaven. <laughs> so, so here is Elijah's chariot, and Lazarus sitting in the in the wheelchair, and and we talked about um, what we. Uh, Uh, she had Jesus standing erect blessing in the first sketch and I said you know that one that Coptic icon of St. Minas couldn't Jesus's hand be on his shoulder so she redesigned it and then we realized you know how in icon painting a perfect circle represents the perfection of God and if you look at that, look at the back of Jesus, the halo, the tree of life, the wheels of the chariot, you can trace implicitly a perfect circle except for Jesus' back foot. And this got me really worried, you know, his back foot's not in the perfect circle. And then I realised that uh, he was, as it were, within God until he stepped outside the circle to touch our lives so Lazarus as a person with learning disabilities well some time later I was in Sweden uh, doing some teaching and it was at the point where I was at my deepest level of grief and anxiety Arthur had recently left home and I was still very much in grief mode up in the top of this place there was a chapel absolutely full of icons, so if we can have the next one. This is a, the traditional, uh, it's actually a modern Coptic icon of the raising of Lazarus and suddenly as they were all praying in Swedish and I didn't understand a word, my eye fell on this icon and I immediately identified with the body language of those women their anguish, and their pleading with Jesus. And behind them, the figure of Lazarus in the grave clothes. Well, it's like um, the swaddling clothes in a nativity scene, isn't it? And he's very short, and he's got a moustache, and he's just like my adult baby, Arthur. And then I realised... The women couldn't see what Jesus was doing behind their backs. And somehow I had this enormous sense of release. How did I know what Jesus was doing with my Arthur behind my back? Something about the letting go being an essential part of love, to love and let go, to let be and to trust. Well, I've shared with you five themes treated one by one, but I hope when you think about it, you'll see they all interconnect. Furthermore, that this is not some sort of sectional theology, which has been the fashion for rather a long time. Disability theology taking its place alongside black theology, feminist theology, liberation theology. There's even child theology. Did you know that? Rather, this is doing theology from the perspective of disability And finding that it illuminates the core depths of the Christian tradition and is profoundly integrative.